All right, open your Bibles once again to Romans chapter 5. Now, last week we finished up the first half, or if you will, the first section there of this chapter by ending in verse 11. Now, even though there are many different points uh, that Paul has made in these first 11 verses, um, all of them give us reasons to rejoice. Matter of fact, he, he uses that word rejoice three times in this first section. And so let's just spend a few minutes uh, taking another look at these verses. Starting in chapter 5, verse 1, you notice he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I mentioned, going through those verses uh, originally, this is not some kind of subjective peace. This is not a, a feeling, if you will, of peacefulness. It is a genuine, authentic peace. Once we were justified, we were no longer enemies of God, which is what we were before Christ, but we are actually allies. Because our sin was taken care of by Jesus Christ on the cross, us and God now have peace with one another. Our differences have been resolved. We are maybe unified is another word that we can use. Verse 2, he went on to say this. He says, through him or through Christ, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so he says here that we sinners, we are depraved human beings because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and certainly because of our faith in him. He says that we have access into his grace. Now, this is not the common grace or what we typically call common grace that is bestowed on all of mankind, but it is a special grace for those who have been redeemed, okay? Just right off the top there in two verses, there's two quick reasons to rejoice. But check out number three, still here in verse two. He says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Very simple, because we have been justified, which is in verse one, because we stand in his grace, verse two, we have a confidence, we have a surety that one day we too will share in God's glory. It's as simple as that, okay? That's why Paul says we rejoice in that, that one day, undeservedly so, we will be there with the Lord. Now stay with me here because there's a little bit more. Verses three through five. He says, not only so, not only what we just talked about, what we just mentioned in verses 1 and 2, he says, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. It's so amazing, he's saying here, to be 
in Christ that even in our troubles, or he uses the word sufferings, maybe some of your translations use the word tribulations. He says they are all for our benefit. You'll also see that in James chapter 1. You'll also see that in 1 Peter chapter 4 because they basically tell us the same thing. But he's saying here that we can glory in afflictions simply because we know there is an end result. We know there is a reason for these things. In difficult times, God is literally molding us into that, the person that he wants us to be. Now, in the next three verses, you might remember this, but Paul here focuses very simply on the love of God. All three verses deal with the love of God. And we all know that is certainly uh, something that we can take joy in. But notice verse 6. He says, you then, at just the right, you see, he says, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. The first thing to point out here in this verse was simply that we, he says, were powerless. In other words, we were unable, we were incapable of saving ourselves. There's literally nothing that we can do, folks, to eradicate our sin. And as you know, and I've always said, and I'll say it again, there's one simple thing, it's not simple, I guess, that keeps us out of heaven or anybody, and that is sin. Okay? Somebody is going to pay for your sin. One of two people will pay for your sin. It will either be you in hell or it will be Jesus Christ on the cross. It's your choice. Which will it be? Okay? Because we ourselves were powerless to do anything about it. We cannot eradicate our own sin. And that's why the word powerless is followed by the words, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay? Now here is the first showing of God's love. There's nothing that we could do. We were powerless to overcome sin. We are powerless to conquer death. And so Christ came and he did it for us. Jesus Christ died for us. Okay? And listen, it's not because we're just so special. It's not because we're so worthy. I mean, Paul literally calls us ungodly. The word means godless. We were godless. But folks, that is the love of God because logically, we were not worth dying for. We were not worth him coming to this earth and paying the price for our sins on a cross. But he did it nonetheless. Matter of fact, notice the contrast that he showed there in verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God, he demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, he says, Christ died for us. So he says here that it's super rare to find anyone who would ever give their life for someone, even if they were considered a righteous man or a, a good man. But he says here that Christ died for us while we were sinners. Set aside the righteousness, because there is no one righteous. He said Christ died for us while we were sinners, literally while we were sinning. As Dave asked me that question a few weeks ago, it literally means while we were in the midst of sin. It's almost as if to say you're caught in the act. But Christ loved us enough 
to die for us. Because we've already learned that we were literally undesirable. We were worthless. We were helpless. We were literally haters of God. People who deserve a godless eternity, but yet Jesus Christ died for us anyway. I would say that's a, it's a pretty big reason to rejoice, folks, because it's undeserving of any of us. And then finally, last week, we looked at verses 9 through 11. And I'll just read verse 9 for you. It says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, or if you will, by his death, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? More and more, uh, as we get into this, Paul keeps showing us it's all about Christ. Okay? We were justified. Remember the word justified means declared righteous in the eyes of God. We were justified, he says, because of him. Okay? In other words, it was his sacrificial atonement. It was his death. It was his blood that was shed. And because of that, he says in this verse, our future is free from wrath. Are we deserving of that? Sadly, yes, we are, okay? Even though we are deserving of that, Christ died for us, and he took care of it. Nonetheless, he took care of our sin. We are deserving of hell, as sad as that is. God is a holy God. We are literally enemies of God, haters of God. We love our sin. We love selfishness. We love what we want to do. We love living on our own. We love living in sexual immorality. We love things that, that we can look at and stare at. And all these, we can think of tons and tons of sins, but we're, we're not deserving of heaven. But yet Christ paid the price and says if we place our faith in him and trust in him, we can be born again. We can be a new creation in Christ, and then he will give us that. Matter of fact, in John chapter 5, verse 24 Jesus says, whomever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Not might have, not could have. He says they have eternal life and he says they will not be condemned. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. He speaks of Jesus whom he says rescues us from the coming wrath. You know, it's a sad day. You know, every one of us are going to die one day. No matter who you are, everyone's going to die. And so many people, by the millions, live on this earth. And they think because they're good people. They think because I'm not as bad as the next guy. I'm not a murderer. I'm not any of these things that somehow I'm going to end up in heaven. Even though they, I, I love to ask them this question. What makes you think there's a heaven? Well, because the Bible says so. Okay, the Bible also says how you get there. But they don't want to read that part. They don't want to, because they want to live on their own. They want to do what they want to do. They don't want to surrender to Christ and receive his forgiveness. They'd rather live on their own and think, ah, I'll be fine. And how many people will not reach or make it to heaven? How many people will pay for their own sin one day um, simply because of their selfishness and their pride? The good news, though, he says in verse 10, for since when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You might simply just put it this way. 
since he was willing to die for us while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, he will certainly, okay, save us. We're talking future, right? He will certainly save us who are now his friends, okay? Our future is secure because it is in Christ, okay? I don't, I don't worry or shake or, wow, gee, I, I hope I'm okay when I die. I, I don't worry about that. Not because it's me, but because, because it's, I base it on Christ. It's what he's done. Therefore, I don't, I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to fret that, gee, I wonder if, if he's still going to save me. Well, that's what the whole point is. If he was willing to die for us while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, he will certainly save us from the coming wrath. And then lastly, we looked at verse 11 which kind of just summed it up when he said, not only is this so, he says, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul here is, is simply is just saying, um, everything that I just wrote to you, everything that I just, if you will, just went through in those first 11 verses, gives us reasons to rejoice. God's love, Christ's death, our reconciliation, and therefore our heavenly future. Folks, if we thanked God literally every single day for what he has done and will do for us, it would never be enough for what he deserves. Never. Won't even come close. Now, this morning, we're going to pick up here in verse 12, and we're going to begin what I would simply call the second half of chapter 5. And you'll notice that Paul is connecting it with the first half because he starts with the word therefore, right? We know what the word therefore means. It means look back and see what he's coming off of. Now, verses 1 through 11, which I just kind of briefly summarized, dealt with our sin, dealt with the fact that we were worthy of God's wrath, but of course, uh, God loves us. He died for us, and he justified us. But now in verses 12 through 21, similarly, he speaks of how God's grace is greater than our sin. Not only does it invalidate the effects of our sin, because everybody has sinned many, many times, but not only will it invalidate the effects of our sin, but it gives us eternal life. It'll give us an eternal future. Now, as we begin here in verse 12, Paul is, is going to look back. He's going to look way back, okay, and speak on how men became sinners in the first place, okay? Look at me real quick. Read verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Okay? Now, before we look at that verse, which I usually jump into real quick, how many of you have a, a little line at the end of that verse? It follows the word sinned. How many of you have a little line there? Pretty much everybody does? Okay. What's happening here is basically while writing this verse down, okay, what we would call verse 12, there were no verses in the original manuscripts, but while writing uh, this verse down here, Paul had other truths 
come into his mind, basically what you and I would call verses 13 through 17. And therefore, he never finished his thought until verse 18. And I'll show you this real quick. Read verse 12 again with me, and then I'll read verse 18. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned, and then nothing, right? Read verse 18. He says, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Okay? So verses 12 and 18 was Paul's original thought. We've seen this before where Paul is writing, and you can tell, you know, Ken just calls it a rabbit trail. Sometimes we go off on a rabbit. You have other thoughts you want to say. Many times, I know myself, I got so much going on in my head sometimes, I'll be talking, and then as I'm talking, something else is coming on, and you kind of veer off into another direction. And that's basically uh, what Paul uh, has done here. And so he basically just interrupted himself, and then we, he starts sharing there what you and I would call verses 13 through 17. But I just want you to know this ahead of time here because he doesn't seem to complete his thought in verse 12, but he will eventually as we get to verse 18. <clears throat> now, let's begin to just break down verse 12. He says here that sin entered the world through one man. Okay? Now, let me just preface this was saying, he did not say sin began with this one man. He said sin entered the world through this one man. Okay, now I wanted to be clear on that and tell you that sin began with who and you and I would call Satan, or if you will, the devil. And that happened before the creation of the world. Now, hopefully, uh, we all know this to a certain degree based on the very fact that Satan, in the form of the serpent in the garden, was already there, right? Right after God created Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan was already there, and he was already cursed, okay? Matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says that Satan has been sinning from the beginning, okay? Now, Listen, we don't know, uh, we cannot define what the word beginning is in that context. We can only say through Scripture that it was after the angels were created. Remember, Satan it was an angel, right? It was after the angels were created, and obviously it was before the temptation in the garden. We don't know the exact time in between there, but it, was, it took place sometime in there. Um, scripture speaks of Satan's fall. Um, he does so, it does so figuratively speaking. Um, when it speaks of the kings of Babylon, the kings of Tyre, if you've ever looked at those passages in Isaiah chapter 14 as well as Ezekiel chapter 28. So you can tell as he use, it kind of has a double meaning where he speaks of those kings, but he uses it also to speak of the fall of Satan. So you can always go back and read those, but I don't want to spend time on all that today. I just wanted to bring that out, that uh, sin began with Satan, okay? Now, go back to verse 12. He says here that sin entered the world 
through one man. Now, even though you and I know who this is, Paul doesn't actually mention his name until verse 14, where he says simply that Adam broke a command. Okay? This is also, by the way, impl implied in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22, which says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now, some of you might just instantly be thinking, your minds are already going there, and say, wait, now, wait a second. Um, Eve sinned before Adam. Why did Adam get the blame? Right? What's the deal with that? And just, by the way, so there's no question about that in our text, Paul also mentions it not just here in verse 12, but he mentions this also in verse 14, in verse 15, in verse 17, as well as in verse 19. Okay? The blame went to Adam. Okay? You'll see that as you go throughout Scripture. As many of you have been studying for many years, you'll see the blame always went to Adam. To see that, I want you to turn back to good old Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Before I read the first six verses there, let me first read chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. He says, The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Bear in mind, this is just Adam. Eve wasn't even created yet. You'll see that in just a second. So God created Adam. He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, he says, You will surely die. And then, of course, in verse 18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay. So we know at that point, obviously, Adam was by himself. Now, read with me chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is basically the story of your, your Bible probably says the fall of man. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, this is the serpent talking to Eve. Did God really say? Now that should say right there. You can see how Satan is already questioning what God said. He said, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Verse 2, the woman, said, that's Eve, said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, just as a quick side note there, where Eve said, God said you must not touch it, we don't have that written in our text. It's certainly possible that God uh, could have said that, or it's possible, as you know, Eve wasn't alive when God told this to Adam, right? We know that already. I just read it. 
So it's possible that maybe Adam told that to Eve, you know, kind of as of just, just don't even go near it. Don't touch it. Just stay away from it. We don't know, but that's, that is certainly what she told the serpent. God said, don't eat of it. Don't even touch it or you will surely die. Verse four, what did Satan say? You will not surely die. So he are, now he's calling God a liar, isn't he? You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit from the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, folks, we know before this took place, right? This is why I read chapter 2 there, a little bit of chapter 2. We know before this took place, chapter 2, verse 18, as well as in verse 20, it says that the woman was created to be a helpmate for Adam, okay? So before the sin ever took place, uh, she was given, if you will, a supportive role, right? Remember, the animals didn't have anybody, or, or, um, or Adam didn't have anybody. He's naming the animals, and it's like, I don't have anybody, right? And so she was given as a helpmate to Adam. Matter of fact, before Eve was even created, it was Adam, as I mentioned a minute ago, that God gave the command to, right? Chapter 2, verse 17, Adam's the only one here. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam was the one that God gave this responsibility to, okay? I want you to see that, okay? Now, to maybe, to maybe a lesser extent, in chapter 3, verses 9 through 13, this is after the sin had taken place, who did the Lord call out to in the garden? Right? You see back in verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man. Right? Both had already sinned. Right? But God calls out to Adam. It's as if it's as if Adam is the one who is responsible for his family. God did not say, "Hey, you too, what the heck did you do? He didn't call out both of them. He just called out Adam. Okay? Now, when God did call out Adam uh, after the sin, he did try to push it off on Eve. Okay? We know how men do that, right? He did try to push this off on Eve, and you can see that in verse 12. Right? Verse 12, the man said... This is Adam talking to God. The woman that you put with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Okay, so he tried pushing it off on Eve. But here's a key point, and this is in the second half of verse 13. Eve said, the serpent deceived me. Okay? very important. The serpent deceived me. Now, before you look at that and say, oh, well, that's a lame excuse, right? We've got to think of something. Paul affirmed that. 
in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, where he said, Adam was not deceived, but Eve was. Okay? Plus, we see it, by the way, right here. I read it right here in Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Notice it said the serpent was talking to Eve, and it said in verse 5, God knows, the devil said, or the serpent said, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened, and you're going to be like God, and you're going to know good from evil. But look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and listen, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Did you catch that? She believed what Satan, what the serpent just said. Hey, that's not true. You're going to be smart. You're going to be wise. You're going to know the difference between good and evil. You're going to be just like God. And that's what it says. She goes, yeah, it looks good for food, but it's desirable for gaining wisdom. See, so she believed the serpent. She was deceived. And then for it says, she took some of it and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it as well. Now, in verse 6, and here's the problem, it says that Adam was right there with her. Did you catch that part? Adam was right there with her. He didn't say a word. He was twiddling his thumbs, if you will. He didn't say a word while Satan was calling God a liar. Oh, that's not true. Did God really say that? Come on. He's calling out God. Adam's not saying a word. And he just, he just didn't do anything. And he just let Eve take a bite of the fruit. He was right there. Holy smokes, he was the first one, the only one that God had told this to at that point. God said, don't eat of that tree. You're going to surely die. So whether God told Eve or Adam told Eve, Eve knew that. We already, right? She, she knew that. But the whole time, Satan was talking to Eve. Adam just sat there. Didn't jump in. Didn't say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not true. That's baloney. Don't believe it. He just stood there while Eve took a bite of the fruit. He didn't jump in. He didn't take the lead, if you will. Eve, or he, he let Eve control the situation. And if that wasn't bad enough, Eve then offered him a bite. Did you see that? Verse 6, and he went right ahead and he took it. Adam was not deceived. Do you see that? Adam just flat out sinned deliberately. Eve was deceived. We know that. We looked at the passages. It's also mentioned in 1 Timothy. Eve was deceived. She believed the lie. She goes, oh, okay. Adam just stood there, did nothing, and she said, oh, here, Adam, you take a bite. Oh, sure. And he just flat out sinned. Just did what he wanted to do instead of what God had told him to do. And so now we get the just of what happened or what, what took place. Why was it blamed on, on Adam? Well, he did nothing. He just let his wife go off into doing that, but Adam deliberately sinned, period. Back in Romans 5, verse 12. He says, once again, just as sin 
entered the world through the one man, right, which we know, of course, is Adam. Adam caught the slack for that. He deliberately sinned against God. He then says, and death through sin. Okay, sin entered the world through one man, through Adam, and then death came into the picture through sin. Just stop right there. So Paul is saying, I'm not just trying to tell you where sin started with man, but I'm also telling you the point that there's consequences for that sin. So here's the story. Here's where sin began. Because in the previous section, we talked about our sin, right? He says, well, here's where it all started. But But I also want you to know there were consequences, really, really deep consequences for your sin. Now, folks, listen, when God created Adam, Adam was sinless. He was the first man created. Adam was sinless, and therefore he was what you and I would simply call immortal. Okay? Adam wasn't subject to death. He had no sin. Okay? Matter of fact, back in Genesis 2, verse 17, God told Adam that if you disobey me, right? And if you eat from the tree, then you will die. He wasn't going to die before that. He was sinless. That's why God created him. But if you do this, if you sin against me, if you disobey me, I only gave you one thing to not do. That's kind of how we are today, right? (laughs) Tell somebody you can't do this, that's what they want to do. It's the old epitome of walking in the park, and it says, uh, a sign that says wet paint. You have the whole park, but now you have one sign that says wet paint on the bench. What are you going to do? <laughs> no kidding. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> We're going to, it's just what we do. He gave him one thing, and he says it's going to cause you to die. As I quoted last week from Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we all know that, right? For the wages of sin is what? Death. Wages are something we earn. The wages of sin is death. Paul had obviously, he was obviously just making a statement of fact. Okay, because this has already started all the way back with Adam. This is just a statement of fact. Look at the wages of sin is death. That's what you get in return for your sin, he says, is that you will die. Now, When using the word death, the context, remember context is always the most important thing, the context will always determine if the author is speaking of physical death or what we would simply call spiritual death, okay? Now here, because Paul is talking about Adam, the context is dealing with Adam, He's talking about both. He's talking about physical death and spiritual death because there were neither at the time. Okay? Even though Adam did not just simply drop dead the second he took a bite of that when he sinned, he did eventually die physically. Okay? As I just stated a minute ago, he was not created that way. Adam was immortal. But once he sinned, God said, you will die. Okay? You will die. Now, as death is typically looked at by the word separation, you may have heard that before, death is usually looked at as separation. Adam 
no question, uh, as, a, as now a sinner, would be separated physically from this world. Matter of fact, back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, when dealing with the consequences of sin, do you remember that, where God dealt with the consequences of sin? You know, to the serpent, he said that you will slither around on your belly the rest of your life, right? For the woman, he said, you will now have pain in childbirth. And for the man, he says, you will now work by the sweat of your brow, right? But then right after that, he says, and you will return to the ground since from it you were taken. From dust you are and to dust you will return. Okay? Consequence of sin. Okay? And by the way, not just for Adam, but for Eve as well. Because at that point, their bodies began to die physically. Their bodies began to break down. Okay? We, we think of that today. You know, literally, we are right now dying. Our bodies are little by little breaking down. Some of us who are at a certain age tend to begin to, to recognize that a little faster than others do. But their bodies began to die physically. Okay? But what came first before they actually died was what we would call a spiritual separation. You see, folks, Adam is now a sinner, isn't he? Adam is now a sinner. He wasn't prior. Adam is now a sinner, but God, of course, according to Isaiah chapter 6, Revelation chapter 4, God is still holy, holy, holy. God is unchanging. His very nature is perfect, sinless, holy. Adam, at that point, separated himself. There's that separation. Adam separated himself from Almighty God. Okay? As Paul said in Ephesians, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, before Christ, before salvation, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. This is what took place with Adam. He became dead in his transgressions and sins. In Colossians 2.13, it says we were dead in our sins and in the uncircumcision of our sinful nature. Okay? So for Adam, folks, because of sin, a spiritual barrier was now erected between him and God. It was never there before. He was, if you will, spiritually different than whom he was when he was created. At one time, he had fellowship with God. He was at unity and unified with God. He was sinless. He, we use the term, he walked with God in the garden. Okay? But not anymore. Things changed. See? He's now a sinner. He's different. There's a separation. Some people just simply call it, there's now a break in fellowship. Some people use that terminology. Okay? Now, here's where Paul throws a curveball. Still in verse 12. You thought I was going to leave verse 12 today, didn't you? you? Well, you were wrong. Still in verse 12, he says this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, through Adam, and then death came through or because of that sin, and now he says, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. 
So what Adam started has continued throughout humanity. Outside of Enoch, which you probably know, outside of Elijah, right? Remember, those two never died. They were taken up to heaven. God chose to take them up to heaven. Outside of them two, everybody has died. <laughs> I don't care who you are, you've died. Okay? Sin has affected everyone and has brought them death. They were all sinners. Every one of them sinned and continued to sin. And they all died. Okay? As Paul said, they died because all sinned. Simple as that. Right? Sin brings death. All sinned, all died. Right? Matter of fact, even Jesus Christ died. Now think about that for a second. Sin is what brought forth the death of Christ. It wasn't his sin. We know that because he never sinned. But it was our sin. To pay for our sins, he had to what? He had to die. Even Christ had to die because he took our sins upon himself. He died in our place. There was no way around it. Even Christ had to die. But once again, it was only because for us. Because he died for sin. See? But as far as, as we go, we inherit a sin nature from Adam. We inherit a sin nature from Adam. Now, Paul does not get into all the questions that, that you and I or anybody else that may arise out of all that. He just simply states the fact that because of Adam's sin, who happens to be the father of the human race, all that follow, okay, because of that nature, all that follow him will therefore die. They will therefore sin, and they will therefore die. Now, we're not given the answer to this in Scripture, but in my opinion, it's because every last one of us would have done the exact same thing that Adam did. If you had the pride and the gall to say, well, I wouldn't have done that, good luck. Adam was sinless. He had no reason to sin against God. He lived in a perfect environment, right? The bottom line is, anybody and everybody who was there, if it wasn't Adam, if it was you, if it was me, we all would have done the same thing. That's really what it boils down to. That's my opinion. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But when you, when you lay it out, that's pretty much it, okay? As I mentioned a minute ago, don't ever sit here and say, Pfft. Well, I wouldn't have done it. If God told me not to do it, I wouldn't have done it. Right, because you're perfect today also. You're kidding yourself. See? Therefore, that nature to sin, that desire that comes within us because we want to do things our way, which is just what Adam did, right? God said, don't do it. He says, but I want to, and he did it. It's come to us all. See? Now, if you, for one second, seem to think that there are some people out there who are innocent, you are kidding yourselves, especially even children. Stop kidding yourself as parents look at their spouses. Ask a parent, 
Nobody ever taught your child, your precious little Susie or Johnny, nobody ever taught that child to, to do wrong or to disobey. But yet they did it on their own. See? And tell me, parents, how old was your child? This is not a rhetorical question. How old was your child when it began to do that? Three, four months. What a heathen. <laughs> See if I ever say hi to Holly again. Covell. If Covell ever did anything wrong? She's, she's Ken's grandchild now. <laughs> Plenty, sure. Anybody else? Three months? Doesn't take long, does it? Vody Bacham. You know what Vody Bacham is? Vody Bacham calls him a viper in a diaper. He's, he's, pretty, he's pretty tough on him. He's pretty tough on kids. The, the point being that everybody who's a parent understands you, you never taught your child to disobey you. you never, but they do it naturally, instinctively. They do it. It's ingrained within them when they're born because they're born with a nature to sin. Okay? The child did not become a sinner when they disobeyed their parents. They disobeyed their parents because that is who they are. They are a sinner. Okay? David himself, King David said in Psalm 51.5, I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I mentioned uh, last week, spiritually speaking, if you will, there are only two kinds of children who are out there, according to the Bible. And I agree, right? You're either a child of God because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. He has forgiven you of your sins. Or, remember what Jesus told the Pharisees? You are a child of who? The devil. Well, that's pretty strong words. But that's it, folks. There's no in-between. I mentioned this last week in my sermon. There's no middle ground. Well, I might not, you know, be some Jesus fanatic, but I'm not a child of the devil. Well, if you have rejected Jesus Christ, then he says you are. He says you are with me or against me. You're one side or the other. There is no hanging out in between. I'm, I'm kind of in the middle. No, you're not. If you've rejected Jesus Christ, then you're on the other side. You're a child of God, he says, or you're a child of the devil. Now, as I close, think about this real quick. If, 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 if you don't like the fact that you were born in sin or that you continue to sin, and you still do, by the way, till this day, just thank God that he gave us a way out. In verse 18, which I read early on, which was the continuing thought from verse 12, what did he say? He said, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life to all men. And certainly we know that is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? You might think, well, it's unfair to inherit a sin nature from Adam. 
But was it fair that Jesus Christ had to come and die for you? You might think, well, I shouldn't have received that. Well, you shouldn't have received forgiveness through faith either, but it's offered to you. And that is the one thing we have to remember through this as we, as we kind of crawled through that real quick, just the one verse today, but as we look back at, at Adam and his sin and what brought death and what, what still comes today through sin nature. It's, the bottom line is we all would have done it, but yet God still loved us to the point, as we talked earlier, God loved us while we were yet sinners, and he still died for us. He still died. He still paid the price that we deserved. He didn't. But he paid the price for that very sin that we have committed. Let's pray. Father, thanks, Lord, for our time today. And thank you, Lord, that even though we have this nature to sin, and we do, and we, we joke about it, we talk about it, but people with children know it's the same thing. It doesn't take long. Even though they've never been taught to do wrong, they do wrong because it's ingrained within their very soul. Every human being, Lord, on this planet needs salvation. Every human being, Lord, it will be lost in their own sin and they will pay the price for their own sin in hell or we can choose to allow Christ to pay it for us if we repent of our sins and we, we place our faith and trust in Christ and what he did. We accept it. Say, I believe that Jesus Christ died on that cross for me, for my sins. I want to turn from my sin and place my faith in Christ. I want him to be Lord of my life. It is amazing, Lord, if we, if we, if we say that, if we pray that, not, not as some, just a bunch of words, but if that is truly in our own heart of hearts, the Bible says we can be born again, and it says we can be forgiven. Lord, we're, we're undeserving of that. We shouldn't be because we're not perfect people. We still are not perfect people. But Lord, that is the grace, that is the love that you have shown to us, that even though we are sinners, you died and offer us forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the reminder of that as we continue little by little to work our way through this, uh, this, this deeper and little more theological book that we call the book of Romans. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.